Il presidente. Ma cos'è la sinistra? Che significa? C'è Hello and welcome back to Take a Left, the podcast from the Socialists and Democrats. We didn't know has long been the refrain of companies forced to confront the human rights and environmental abuses in their supply chains and in their value chains. From the Rana Plaza disaster to Blood Diamonds, conscious Europeans can be forgiven for feeling the situation would never change. Companies have had the opportunity to self-regulate and to prevent environmental abuses and human rights failures, but voluntary measures have failed. Now, change is coming thanks to the EU. A transformative new European law will mean businesses can no longer plead ignorance. Any business looking to sell on the European market will have to carry out human rights and environmental checks to know what is going on in their supply chain. We spoke to Lara Volters, the MEP from the Dutch Labour Party that is leading the European Parliament's work on the new corporate due diligence laws. Patrick Alley is the co-founder and director of Global Witness. He recently released his book, Very Bad People, detailing his decades spent campaigning against unethical business practices. Lara and Patrick joined us in Brussels to discuss what happens next. I'll go straight into it. What is due diligence? Due diligence is about re- responsible businesses, and um, due diligence is about businesses taking uh, responsibility for their value chains when it comes to the environment, when it comes to governance and human rights. Um, and ultimately, the aim of making legislation on this is for companies no longer to be able to say, we didn't know about what was going on um, on the other side of the world. I think from my experience over the years, one of the things that's really, really annoyed me is when you're talking to a company that's absolutely responsible for terrible harms, going, oh, well, no one told us what to do, or we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And these are rich companies, they have no excuse not to know, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, why we're having this conversation. Yeah. And when we talk about terrible harm, it's, it's obviously environmental and human rights. Is it all, have they always been linked? One of the founding principles of Global Witness was when myself and my two co-founders almost 30 years ago, we're looking at what was happening in Cambodia and the civil war that was going on and the Khmer Rouge, genocidal guerrilla group. One side of that war was trading tropical timber with Thailand. And we asked ourselves that question, is this an environmental problem or a human rights problem? And of course it's both. The money's funding a war. Um, it's destroying a rainforest. But at that time, no organisation looked at that nexus. Um, and it's only really relatively recently that people are sort of beginning to realise those things are in fact inseparable. I suppose also because you describe that in your in your book indeed that it's that combination of things that that people maybe um, hadn't cottoned on to but I, I suppose the reason for it often is that it doesn't matter sometimes what stands in the way but if there are things standing in the way of large companies or corrupt regimes making money then they will they will ignore them or they will push back. One of the things that I've observed over the years is with cases like this corruption is virtually always there it's the root of most of these things and if a company has paid some facilitation payment some bribe to a politician or senior official then that politician or official where their duty should be towards the citizens they should serve Mm -hmm. it in fact is now towards their paymaster and then as they get richer through corrupt means they get more paranoid um, they like the power they're getting, they need to protect it, they get more authoritarian. Um, and for me, corruption is kind of the, you know, the, the forerunner of dictatorship. Um, and as Lara said, you, you get to this point where the situation is so toxic mm-hmm. that ordinary people 
um, can't do anything uh, to protect themselves or to seek justice, while the companies too often take advantage of it. It suits them very well. Could you give us like an example of a, a successful campaign, a sort of feel-good story to start us off? The second campaign we ever did was the issue of blood diamonds. And at that time, in the late 1990s, these terrible civil wars in West Africa, in Angola, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, incredibly brutal wars, were being funded by the diamond trade. And those diamonds were flowing freely, not least into Antwerp, which is the biggest diamond marketing centre in the world. And 80% of the world's rough diamonds were traded by one company, the cartel De Beers. People weren't talking about it. The industry knew about it, but people weren't talking about it. And what we did in the end was to um, look at De Beers' annual reports, because the diamond trade is a very hard thing to investigate. Um, it's a very closed business. Um, but we looked at De Beers' annual reports, and we, we focused on one country as a, you know, the arch case study, if you like, which was Angola. And in their reports, they'd say, you know, the report for whatever year it was, something like, the fact we can still buy X carats of rough diamonds is a testament to the skill of our buying teams. <laughs> um, then we would compare that to figures of international NGOs about how many people had died that year in the war, which was in the hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. um, and then point out the diamond fields are in control of a rebel group, mm -hmm. you know, almost exclusively in control of the UNITA rebel group. Therefore, you are buying conflict diamonds. De Beers also said, um, you can't tell where a diamond comes from. Um, but in fact, we've, we talked to geologists who said, if you've got a few rough diamonds, you can, you can pin it to the mine. Mm -hmm. um, then we found a book published in 1932 by De Beers, talking about exactly how you can find where diamonds come from. Um, and we launched that report, 14 pages, in late 98. And it happened by a sad coincidence to coincide with the, the restarting of the Civil War. And the news went ballistic. The work we'd done previous to that on other issues, no one had heard of us, no one knew about it. The diamond thing went everywhere, and the term blood diamond was born. I guess we want to live in a situation where we don't need NGOs to have to campaign on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, we will have overarching pan-European legislation, or country-by-country. Country. Now the, the point is to prevent all of these... Um, well, all of these examples that you can read about in Patrick's book, which I've re read and, and which is fascinating, by the way. Um, but going back to the legislation, indeed, it is about preventing um, uh, preventing uh, environmental degradation, uh, preventing uh, corruption and, and human rights abuses. Um, and the reason that we're able to do this now is that politically there's um, there's momentum. And that's not momentum that the European Parliament has created on its own. That's because we're standing, you know, on the shoulders of, of giants or at least of, of a lot of others who have made that possible. And Global Witness is one of them. But there's there's lots of NGOs and, and civil society groups who for years have pushed and said, how is it possible that in the modern world where um, all of these these abuses are are, are, are are hiding in plain sight, are there for everyone to see, mm -hmm. how is it that we're not doing anything about them? Because surely our company and as Patrick said, um, are, are wealthy enough. Surely the, the companies that, that, that give those large orders and so forth are, um, are mature and, and, and rich enough uh, to take the responsibility. Mm -hmm. It does seem unbelievable that you know, our clothes are made in sweatshops. How has the increase in personal technology and things like that affected it? I think that helps if yeah. you if you mean things like like social media or 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 you know newspaper articles being being very accessible now. Um, I think that has helped because I think that um, 
you know, there's, there's companies who, who want to do a good job and who, who, who want to make sure that their, their value chains are, are clean. But there's also the ones who aren't acting in good faith. And I think for them, reputationally, mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, a five second video on TikTok of a garment worker in a factory somewhere, um, you know, and, and who says, help me, mm -hmm. um, can be out there for everyone to see. I think that's a real deterrent. And I think that has made that uh, most companies now here in Brussels say, mm -hmm. we want this legislation because we realize that that something's up or we realize that that yeah. now um, it'll it'll be much better for us to 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 have one law that that is clear for all. But I think that for the, the, the worst abuses, the motivation behind this for some of the companies is the reputational damage that yeah. can can yeah. result from from, you know, everyone now having access to what's happening on the other side of the world. I, I think it's a, a mixed bag. Um, a lot of the companies that operate um, say in the in the areas of commodities like sugar or palm oil or soy or beef no one's ever heard of yeah companies like jbs one of the world's biggest beef companies no one's ever heard of it right um adm bungie you know these these companies so for them less of an issue i think and i'd also say that fossil fuel companies are the thickest skinned beasts on the planet you know there's so much stuff been thrown at them over the years so they don't seem to care but there are there are a level of companies public facing companies where it is a concern and, and i think it's it's been an incremental thing where when we started you know we've been called you know one of the pioneers of the anti-corruption movement we have we hadn't heard of corruption when we started um and we and others like transparency international and other organization you know sort of built up the profile of corruption and managed to get legislation here and there. Um, and I think due the due diligence um, law is part of that process. And it's, it's an increasing awareness where I think companies broadly feel they can no longer get away with it like they did, but they have tried to get away with it for as long as they could. What's actually happening? Where, where are we? What's the Parliament doing? <laughs> where we are is only at the beginning of the, the process, and that's a little bit stressful because we've got two years left in this Parliament's uh, mandate. Um, but where we are is at the beginning of the process to now uh, write a law. So we have a, a proposal for that law from the European Commission, and the reason that we have that proposal is that I've previously written an, an initiative report that pushed the Commission um, to give us something. And that, that initiative was supported by a broad majority in Parliament, which showed clearly that not only now um, is this an issue of NGOs, um, not only is this an issue of concerned citizens, but that you know the European Parliament from left to right recognizes that businesses need to become responsible and that in, in this new age that when, when, when in uh, lots of different ways we're trying to move towards a more sustainable economy, I mean here in the European Parliament we're, we're talking about um, you know, the Green Deal, we're talking about a circular economy, we're talking about everything from, from taxonomy to isolating houses, but um, companies can play a huge part in that um, in that, that, that new sustainable economy, of course, if, mm -hmm. if we accept that, you know, the, the days of business as usual are over um, and that profit can, can no longer be, be made in, in any way, then I think that um, this legislation will, um, will help in, in, that, in that transfer. And, uh, and the, the, the full European Parliament, so not only the, the activists on the left, but also liberals and, and conservatives have, have realized this and put themselves behind it. So where we are is, um, I'll be writing from September onwards um, a, a, a report on, on this on this new legislation so I'll be um, I'll be I'll be giving my views on what the Commission has put forward and then um, somewhere before the elections we hope to, to have a law in place.
potential to be a global game changer because there have been different systems in different places, third-party verification schemes or self-declaring this, that or the other. This will capture everybody. It's a bit like the Dodd-Frank uh, Amendment 1504 in, in the US on oil and mining companies. It's, it's a catch-all in one of the biggest markets in the world. Um, and you know the US and Canada will be looking at this. I, I think it's just an incredibly brilliant development, but there are shortcomings, but if those can be dealt with, then that would be fantastic. And maybe just to go into to some of those shortcomings, um, we've talked about, about corruption, um, and uh, due diligence is, is essentially about three things. It's about human rights, it's about the environment and climate, but it's also about governance. Mm -hmm. um, and there, I think, at the moment, we've really not got um, a, a, a proposal that's, that's up to scratch because um, governance can, can mean many, many different things that, again, impact on human rights or on the environment. So what we want is companies that have um, uh, anti-corruption checks in place that make sure that they don't um, become part of money laundering or actively money launder. We want to make sure that there's no tax evasion or tax avoidance or at least that there's transparency on those things. And I think that that's a very important pillar that at the moment is, is being forgotten a little bit. Um, so there I, I want to make improvements. The other thing that, um, that you touched on in the beginning is that the threshold for, for victims of people on the, on the receiving end of our consumerist behaviors here um, very often have a, a very, very hard time, and you'll know this much, much better than me, having seen it in practice, but having a very hard time um, getting access to justice and getting any justice at mm -hmm. all. Um, and at the moment, I don't think the word remedy features in the text of the European Commission, but also um, what we had proposed as a parliament is the reversal of the burden of proof, i.e. if um, a, a trade union somewhere has, says that, that there's, there's, there's been wrongdoing, there's a problem, um, that ultimately it's up to a company to show and to prove that it has done everything it can um, to avoid that, that in fact it's been, it's been acting correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and that is because it's often much harder because of these power imbalances um, for the victims um, to go and gather evidence for victims to get to a judge in time. Very often there's a limited time in which they can do that. Very often they don't have the right support or financial means to do it. Um, so it'll be very important that we, we ensure that there's access to justice and access to justice in such a way that it can actually be used and can lead to justice. Okay. Can I yeah, please, that please as do, well? Yeah. Which, which, yeah, I really endorse what you said there about this, this level of inequity. Just to give a couple of examples, we worked years ago on um, a, a contract for iron ore mine in Liberia. Um, I won't go into the details of that, but it was Mittal. Um, and Lakshmi Mittal's personal wealth at the time was 295 times greater than Liberia's national budget. That's at government level. So if you think right. of local populations and how they're affected, how can they possibly yeah. deal with that? And at the other end of the scale, you have the, the criminalization and non-lethal and lethal violence against the stakeholders, against indigenous communities and local communities. And if you're sort of trying to bring evidence in, in a situation where you're actually risking your life doing it and perhaps losing your life doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, those things really need to be tackled. And, and it, it's going in the right direction a little bit, but mm -hmm. it's still, there's far too much in the way of violence um, and inequity, and we need to deal with those things. And, and that's interesting, so you're saying that this isn't necessarily included in the pro pro proposal at the moment. Um, why is that? What, what are the forces pushing against that? Mm -hmm. And, and what, what, what's their stated reason for doing so? And what's their real reason, would you say? 
Well, there's no stated reason for, for, for doing it because, of course, the European Commission will say that, you know, this is a brilliant proposal. Um, and to be clear, I mean, I'm very happy that it's here and they have done their best and they were under huge internal pressure um, because of big companies saying, whatever you do, this needs to be workable for us, and we have major doubts. And mm -hmm. so the Commission, in the process of writing this, got cold feet mm -hmm. and very much um, adopted a, a business-centric view of the whole thing. Um, and that means that um, things like having contact with local communities, having, having um, trade unions be a part of this due diligence process, making sure that you know, whistleblowers can be heard, all of that, mm -hmm. um, was then seen as a, a burden um, and and companies have, 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 have repeatedly said to the European Commission, um, yes, 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 we do want this law, of course we want this law, it's all very important, but it has to be workable for us. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what happens on the other side of the world and it's very difficult for us. And so again, going into exactly the narrative you know, that we had previously um, and exactly what we don't need here, because of course what we need is a, a law that actually makes a difference. And if mm -hmm. we say, well, we'll make a law, but we'll only make it in such a way that everything a company does, you know, can, can, can be verified, that a company only needs to go and write a little clause in its contract that anyone it does business with then has the duty to go and check there's no human rights abuses, or then, then we won't get anywhere because what we want is for companies to proactively go and dig for problems. Um, and the European Commission says, well, this is all very burdensome on companies, that's all very difficult. Um, and talking to stakeholders or talking to people on the ground, yes, but only where appropriate, only if really necessary. Um, so I think that the view has shifted to something that's very much, you know, supposed to be extremely workable for companies. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it shouldn't be workable, but I think that the, 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 the purpose has been lost a little bit. And the purpose is um, you really want proactivity from companies and you really want um, a little bit of a gray zone, if you will, because you don't want to um, to have this be a, a tick box exercise where a company is told exactly what it needs to be do, um, you know, to, to be able to, to sleep soundly at night. What you want is for, for companies to go and do what is relevant and what is useful uh, for them and what, what they have heard about might go on in their, yeah. in their value chains. I'm not an expert in every member state in Europe, but I can't imagine there are many member states in Europe where the citizens do not have a right to be consulted if a company is going to build a big development next to them. Yeah. If that's the case, why on earth is it okay yeah. on the other side of the world? Um, and of course, it's a step down from you know, legitimate direct rights that some of these communities have. You know, indigenous people under the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People have a right of free prior and informed consent yeah. about anything to do with the land they live on. Why would the Commission water that down, go below what's already a fixed right? It's, it's unacceptable. And very similarly, um, there's another argument that I often use when, when companies say, but, but this is all so, so complicated and you can possibly ask us to do that. Um, and the example is that if, um, if a plane crashes, um, imagine a scenario where a plane crashes and, and Boeing says, well, that was due to a faulty screw somewhere, but we have no idea where that screw came from. We, we don't know. Um, who, who delivered that to us. We don't know who was responsible for it. You can't possibly ask us, you know, where that one screw came from. That would be unacceptable. Um, nobody would say, well, you know, that's just how it goes. So so I think that the argument of, well, well we can't possibly, you can know, mm -hmm. but it is an effort. And so um, we need to absolutely make sure that, that companies have a duty to go and dig and a duty to go and, and, and find out. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there is 
um, there is some scope for the difficulties. The, we won't say that, you know, whatever it is you find, whatever problem there is, that's straight to jail with you. I mean, obviously, that is not what we're doing here either. But this legislation hopefully being um, a model for, for other parts of the world. I hope that this can be a blueprint for, for the rest of the, of the, of the, of the world, but mm -hmm. that's, you know, this is no mean feat and we're right at the beginning of the process. Um, and and my, my dream would be that we get a sound European law that is then an inspiration mm -hmm. for, for other continents. But of course, I'm not holding my breath for, you know, the raw capitalism, uh, you know, in, in the US um, and businesses there to go and, 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 and push this. Mm -hmm. You know, the Republicans at the moment, I think, um, you know, would... would um, never, never, never vote in favor of such at all. So I'm not really holding my breath for, for this to happen anytime yeah. soon over there. And that's the best bet we have, I think, because, or Canada is probably better. But then, you know, India, China, Russia, they're not going to be doing anything like this anytime soon. So hopefully this can be a blueprint, but it would, you know, it would take time in other parts of the world. And I think that in the, the countries where, um, you know, where situations are, are, are worst, um, I, I think that, that from their governments, um, you know, we, we, we wouldn't be expecting this legislation either. So, so important that our Western big companies themselves go and act responsibly and respect um, uh, human rights and so forth. I don't know if I've answered that that clearly, but... No, that makes sense. Um, I suppose I, it was a little bit pessimistic as a message. <laughs> I suppose that's why I'm thinking well, about yeah, it. Yeah. I was thinking, how can we end on a positive <laughs> note? Because it's a positive thing. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm slightly more optimistic. I, I think... Yes, it's not going to change the world tomorrow, but I think it's a huge step given the importance of the European market. Um, there, there is precedent for like transparency in the oil and mining industries that what Europe does, the US might well do, and vice versa. Um, so I think it's incremental, but this is a huge increment. But also, of course, it is going to affect companies from those places if they want to bring something into Europe. So a lot of companies are going to have to be doing it anyway if they want Europe as a market. Yeah. And that means it's less onerous for them to make a complete change. They won't have to make a complete change in their own country if it comes, because they're already doing it for Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and going back to this issue of company reputations, if they're going to have to do it, they'll probably shout about it, going, we're doing a really good job. Um, and that they might actually become a, you know, an advocate for the law in that country. That, that, maybe that's over-optimistic, but, <laughs> but it's a possibility. <laughs> I think up until up until some weeks ago, I was rather more optimistic about um, about the U.S. as well. Um, thinking because I've I've heard of, of interest there. I, I know that um, something like a carbon border tax they're also interested in. Um, but I think what really really threw me was, um, and this is slightly off topic, but you know what happened around abortion in the U.S. Um, I think sort of opened my eyes to the 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 level of you know, conservatism or, or Trumpism, I suppose, we're still dealing with. And I think mm -hmm. that that has sort of influenced me a little bit in, yeah. in answering your question here. And that up until some weeks ago, I thought, you know, this really like Dot Frank, you know, this could push things. And, and um, you know, this is the, we're, we're not doing anything, um, you know, anything, anything crazy here. If we can, can tell these these American lawmakers that all of this is in line with, you know, what they're signing up to at UN level already, mm -hmm. then surely, you know, progress will come. And then, the, 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 you know, the Supreme Court draft ruling came and, and I thought, oh gosh. But with new laws in Europe, there is at least some hope that this will spread out and be taken as a source of inspiration in other parts of the world. Absolutely. And, and I think that the, the Brussels effect, you know, that has been described um, might very well be 
um, you know, working in, in our favor over the past years on, on, on some of those on some of those things. And I think that um, the whole package of what we're doing here, and this is part of it, but mm-hmm. you know that we were describing before all those different initiatives we're taking, um, I, I think that shows um, you know, that shows ambition in, in a block of so many countries that so often disagree. So mm-hmm. if all of those can be rallied around these types of projects, then um, I really do think that that sends a very positive um, signal for the future. Amazing. So we're making history. Definitely making history. It's an incredible thing. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Take a Left, the podcast from the Socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament. We're leading the fight to make sure that we deliver to protect the planet and protect people. Thanks for listening. Take care.